1: You're listening to a podcast from The Word.
2: <laughs> That's probably officially the worst joke. In, Tell, me in the remember, right.
0: Tell me if you remember any of these groups, okay? Blackfoot Sue? I do, yeah. Hustler? No, were they gay? Don't, <laughs> I don't think so. I think it's before. I thought a gay was invented.
3: <laughs> <Strider>. oh, <give laughs> oh, gay rhythm. I can't away my magazine subscription <laughs> <laughs> habit. Hey, go on. Strider? Strider uh, with a Y? With a gay? <laughs> <Really? laughs> Sasserfrost. It's Sassafras.
0: Sassafras. Sassafras, I do remember. They were Welsh. I think. Cozy Powell's Hammer. Uh, yep. Kilburn and the High Roads, of course. Jack Straw. For, before he was long, before he was Home Secretary, Foreign Secretary, whatever. He, so he used to play. Part, yeah. He used to be a regular on on the Saturday nights at the Marquis Club. Uh, the Average White Band. Headstone. Don't remember them. No. Dog Soldier, featuring Keith Hartley. Oh God! Group of Keith Hartley starter. This, really hey, hey, this is all yeah. completely lost we on me. Yeah, good right? <laughs> <laughs> on Thursday, Keith Hartley, the guy
3: who looked like a Native American Indian.
0: Yes, I think he gave I think half half breed. Half breed. Keith, half breed. Uh, Keith Hartley came from Lancashire, <laughs> <laughs> I think.
3: Stay but with just, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm texting some friends. Help. are you
2: here. Are you tweeting? No, I've got, I've got, I've got airplane mode. I'm digging up. I, I, I crowd some questions. From uh, from people, so I'm scribbling down here. So oh, I, I remember that. Okay.
0: Have we started? What? We have started. Oh, yeah. We have. It's Bloody the word hell. podcast. On the items on the agenda uh, for uh, for today, uh, where we're joined by Eamon Ford. Eamon. hello, Thanks. hi everybody. Mark Allen and I'm Fraser isn't. Uh One of the foremost items on the agenda. was, just wanted to get out this way, get out of the way quickly. Penises in rock. There are uh, lots of them. Okay, notable penises in rock. Anybody care to start us off?
1: Uh, Bruce Dickinson, I believe, has a a, a large member. Yeah.
3: Right? Um, he? How he we he, how he, segue <laughs> into this <laughs> subject <separately>. <laughs> 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 is, is there a rock? A rock, rock, rock star,
2: well, rock star penises are always on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Sorry, <laughs> sorry. He's here all week. it's It's gone blue already. Oh, right, right. <laughs> so, sorry, Bruce Dickinson from well, Iron
1: Maiden. I know this is from, as a 16-year-old examining pictures of men with lycra pants. Oh, yeah. I'm uh, thinking there's something there. that uh, maybe yeah. there's, be. Something,
0: there's something, there's something <laughs> of the night. Because yeah. <laughs> long before the lycra pant, there was the days of the Kensington Market loon pant as sported by you know your lead singer in your heavy rock group in the late in the early 70s wasn't the mark and uh, and the loon pants for those of us old enough to remember them was an item of trousering that made mm-hmm. no allowance whatsoever for the genitalia. Is no, that correct? It was
3: comprised, uh, if I remember rightly, of only four pieces of material. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you need more than that to um, extend some form of comfort <laughs> to you, I think. <laughs> As <laughs> a past wearer of loon pads, I'm old enough to have had several pairs, in fact, uh, made by a company called South Sea Bubble.
2: Yeah. Remember that? <laughs> Were the, C- B- C- C- these C- the
3: C- kind C- of trousers that
2: would reveal your religion? Well, they,
0: this is my Absolutely. You see, Robert right. Plant and yeah. so forth. All these yes. guys used to get a reputation of having enormous members because they wore the loon pant. Oh, of course. And the loon pant would... would we pretty much had a reputation
3: for having a member. It wasn't really the size. It was just the fact that it existed at all. Yeah. S- Lady Gaga would be well advised not to wear a pair of these. So,
0: <laughs> other... All right. Other are are there penises in
2: Rock, and gone. Uh, well, I guess you've got all this Cynthia Plastercaster stuff, so Hendrix,
0: all of those... Uh, Who, for, for the benefit of younger have listeners... Have we done Iggy Pop? So have you mentioned Iggy? Well, we get to him. Oh, right. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Oh, you uh, got, uh, so uh, uh, explain for the benefit of younger listeners how the, the Plasticaster phenomenon... Uh, well, I guess it was kind of... Mid
2: late sixties, this woman called Cynthia Plastercaster became her uh, nom de
3: plaster, I guess. Mister and Mrs. Plastercaster. It's a double-barrelled name. She was aristocratic. She's a the, the Plastercasters plaster. of, 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 of Gloucestershire. It's like Mister, uh, <laughs>
2: Tick. <laughs> Mr. Mr.
0: Tick the teacher. She, like she, uh, the Janet <laughs> and Alan Alber books.
3: Cinth,
2: right. Cynthia was out in the field doing important ethnographic <laughs> research, like Harry Smith in a way. She was <laughs> she was collecting important details. Basically, she would she uh, would pop- uh, go backstage with the rock stars off the day and then uh, put a plaster mound around their engorged member to to save it for uh, later generations
1: to stand in wonder I believe she's still working, I think you can book yourself an appointment really?
3: It might have been a bit disappointing you your own for, for the rock stars of the day, You're probably exi- uh, expecting something slightly more uh, thrilling than to, to have the oh, old woman uh, wrapped up in, in plaster of Paris.
2: I, I, I don't want to comment on her uh, on her life choice, but I think she may have uh, finished the job a few yes, times. <laughs> yes. It may I have had a happy end. Said, <laughs> oh, a happy finish. <laughs>
0: So, Bruce Dickinson, Cynthia Plasticaster, Mark, over to you, Penises and Rock.
3: Well, I I was going to mention Iggy Pop. I remember because Iggy Pop uh, was signed to Christmas Records in about 1982, I think, uh, for a solo record. And I remember the the people who ran the press office, they were great pals of mine, and they uh, were appalled one day when Iggy went on the rampage around the building, enlivened (laughs) by by intoxicants, (laughs) now that's a surprise... And in fact, I once interviewed a geek. When he turned up, to tell you this, I did a radio interview with him, and he turned up covered in woad and face paint. Wow. And the guy took me aside again from Christmas and said, uh, It was a Radio 1 interview. He said, Look, he said, Jim, because they used to call him Jim, which is, of course, his real Jim thinks it's a television interview. So don't disabuse him of this fact. <laughs> I love the idea that his preparation, most people prepare for a television interview by, well, by doing a bit of research and brushing their hair. But he got up oh, no. early in order to paint himself <laughs> with woad. But anyway, he ran around Christmas Records stark naked. And uh, the press girl there, Suzanne Parks, I remember, ringing me up and said, this is a monster. <laughs> this is just the just great yeah. swinging thing like that, Like <laughs> an <laughs> elephant's trunk. Yeah,
2: it, 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 works was across, it works across 2 postcodes. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so apparently, well, no, we've seen pictures of it. I remember pictures of Hugh Cornwall <laughs> and the strangers. They had a record out called Black and White, which he uh, promoted uh, rather cleverly by stripping himself stark naked and painting half his body black and the other half white. See what he and, did there? See what he did there? Yes, very clever. And, and, of course, there is one part in the body that, I suppose <laughs> that belongs, in a sense, almost to both halves. Goodness me. Um, and that was, indeed, painted both black and white. And the other one... It's could like must Michael have Jackson. Jim Care. <laughs> Jim Care. simple Care is meant to have an absolutely colossal look. Didn't moment. they?
2: Like a, a baby's to...
1: arm. holding <laughs> <Yeah,
3: back>. yeah. <laughs> God, this This is,
2: is awful. <laughs> Didn't, didn't Mojo a couple of years ago have a scratch-off cover with Iggy in the nip? And, and yeah. they had a kind of uh, silver circle and over, the nip. Over, <laughs> over let's, let's not mince our words here, his todger. Yes, yes, and yes. you scratched it off. Yeah. I like he's him. But talking talk, talk about Rockstar members, I've I've seen one. But kind of side-on, let's say. But it leads into another... Uh, God, which, uh,
3: which, who was the other? saw I saw,
2: I saw James Dean Bradfield uh, of the Manic Street Preachers. A, I was standing in a urinal. Not like <laughs> hanging around there. I was in actually using the facilities. And he, he was in a bar in West London years ago. And he was in having a pee beside me. and uh, so, the so obviously, kind of peripheral vision you could see. But the, the most important fact is that is he, he's a walker. Doesn't wash his hands. Oh, good okay. dear. So, uh, if, if there are any, uh, Female listeners out there, this is this is a shameful thing yes. of, 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 of meal toilet etiquette. Uh, the walkers are those dirty, dirty creatures who uh, relieve yeah. themselves Pee and, and then do not wash their hands. Dero, Dero. And also the unnamed head of a very, 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 very large record company is also a walker. I will not I will not mention his name but uh, in case I get sued, oh, but okay. I, will, I will tell you off mic who it was. But so, within my famous
0: music industry, walkers. Any right? more famous penises in rock? Geniuses with, with which we're familiar. John Lennon's, of course.
1: We've, We've seen yes. pictures We've, of it.
0: We've all seen it. It was
1: on the, the cover of The Wedding Two Virgins. Yeah. Two virgins. Yeah. It was, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Tommy Lee.
0: Tommy. Uh, oh, Tommy Lee has famously recorded in the, in the video with... Uh, I'm I'm that yes. Two Virgins
3: cover had a terrible effect on me. <laughs> I can't and imagine I was, why. I tell you why because I was, uh, you know, in my whatever I would be mid-teens or something, and at, at that stage, Dave, I, I hadn't seen a great many naked women. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> it wasn't they weren't blood relatives. Welcome to my uh, life. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so, well, I was at the school, yeah, and the news got out that John Lennon of the Beatles, the Hey Jude hit makers, <laughs> had, had made a solo album with his girlfriend, we, we weren't keen on his girlfriend at the time, I have to say, we all thought she was a, a lunatic harpy, you know, a, 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 a view that I, of course, revised frequently since. <laughs> no, anyway. And back. And Look. I was introduced to Yoko Ono, God, I hope she, she doesn't listen to our podcast, Oh, she yeah, not? she's on the list. Oh, is she, right. I was introduced to her at a do about two or three years ago, and I, while I was talking to her, I couldn't... Get, I, put it, I couldn't get... I couldn't get out of my head. My feelings as so, a... Well, I remember was a 14-year-old. seeing really? a picture of a star naked because I remember thinking that, that all I'd been told about naked women was actually a massive disappointment. And <laughs> that's another <laughs> guy. So you'd read, a, 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 look, read a load of... This e- is what naked women are. You'd read a load, load of Ian Fleming books. I'm sure you'd
0: say that. fantasising about kind of James Bond girlfriends. And, and you terrified saw Yoko know, Ono. life. looked like
1: she was attempting to conceal a poodle.
2: This
0: is poor. Look like, no, like, what's like, happened to
2: the podcast. It looked like <laughs> Demosthenes <members> pot potholing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is
1: very poor. <laughs>
2: This has gone a bit body, I don't know why, but I'm, I'm reminded the, of our role. Uh, <laughs> David. David
3: and I worked at Smash Hits magazine about 25 years ago, and we had a longer actually, We had a, an ad man who had so many great expressions, and he once said to me, he was trying to describe the world's smallest bikini. It's <laughs> two corn pa- It was two corn plasters and a cork. And, you know, <laughs> and, uh,
0: <laughs> anyway, for God's but sake, no, let's no, talk about something better. Okay, okay, this God, is terrible. Can, readers, I, listeners, can I can just point out God. you're the ones introducing all the all the readers. I just simply, I'm, tr- I'm just interested in <coughs> penises in rock because there aren't that okay. many of this, them. This penis topic is blown up in our <laughs> but faces. <laughs> but D- David Bowie and Diamond Dogs wasn't there the controversy about the was a, if you on the American version or whatever on the fold-out, that he was he was as a dog but with the dog's penis? Is mm-hmm. that right? I oh, that's right. Yeah. Lord I Transformer? Tra-
3: Transformer? Dave? Lou Reed? Was the penis on Transformer? Well, I don't know how to put this, but it was, he looked like he was a man in a state of oh yes, sticky, sticky fingers. <laughs> Cover. Stick Sticky fingers. fingers, of course.
0: Sticky Adam fingers. Clayton on the cover of U2's whatever, Acting Racko-
3: Baby. Baby. But the picture yeah. used very, very small, wasn't it? So the a- actual size, <laughs> remember, would be hard to uh, calibrate.
0: Jim Morrison producing his penis on the stage at that gig in um, Florida that led to And his collar felt. More than, <laughs> a yes. Collars Colour, Colour, and Mr Dibble. That's and, right, yes. And, of course... Uh, Mick Jagger, the John, I really <laughs> just got that. <laughs> even fought his way ahead of me. He's on fire. <laughs> <laughs> uh, more petrol on him. <laughs> what was the Rolling Stones tour, which climaxed with Mick Jagger sitting astride a huge inflatable? I saw that tour. That was in the year. It, it was in it was 1976.
3: Part, they, like? they played Earls Court. They also played Nedworth that year. Uh, I think it was that tour, was it?
0: Yeah. probably Astride a, no, a, a strider pen- giant, stride, giant inflatable knob. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was an old tradition of that kind of thing. boys you Beastie boys as well later on, yeah. beasty boy, yeah. So, okay, so that's just our partial list of penises, uh, let's call it the knobs in rock. Yeah. Uh, thread. Cox in rock. Coxin rock, which you're more than, you know, we're more than happy to to receive further submissions. <laughs> you know, we've got about 10 there, but you know, there must be <laughs> There's going to be a hundred, haven't there? <laughs> is there going oh, to be easily. a long thread about this? Yeah, what are really we starting? Well, I think you
2: know. I think oh, I've, 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 sorry, lowbrow. No brow. Can I just interrupt at this point because I forgot to do my non-traditional thing on the. Uh, on the podcast, to uh, give everybody a little gift. Oh, and Wayman's it's sli- got a gift! Like, oh. Slightly late, because it's after... It's oh, Wayman! Hey, oh, Look I've, I've got everybody a oh, cream oh, egg and That's absolutely brilliant. There, oh, there you am a fool for you a, a cream ax- egg. You can actually feel your teeth dissolve <laughs> as you <laughs> eat it
3: All my fillings are starting to fizz, just thinking about them Your
2: heart will wave a little white flag as you eat it. Now, we asked Damon in here today,
0: it's always a pleasure to have Eamon here on the podcast a pleasure never <laughs> <for> a chore. <laughs> but particularly uh, at this time because there's a fantastic piece in the current issue uh, of Word um, in the in the first person slot where uh, people write about the their unique uh, personal experiences generally right. in their childhood or their adolescence or whatever some some area where their personal life intersected with entertainment and uh, and Eamon's done one which is about uh, it's about your life growing up in what I think we're going to have to call the wilds of Northern Ireland, aren't we, Eamon? Very much so, very much so. So, um, for the benefit of anybody who hasn't read this, which is shameful, because... Shame, like, shame on you shame all. Shame on you. What's, uh, you. What was remarkable, what was exceptional about your childhood in terms of access to pop music? Access to pop music, and what was exceptional was that
2: there was no access to pop music. I, I basically grew up in a house with no music. And we didn't have a record player until... I was fifteen, and I had to buy it myself. I had to earn the money. Uh, this is like kind of Angela's Ashes or something, isn't <laughs> it? Like my my poor awful Irish upbringing. Uh, but it wasn't it wasn't A little violin it, yeah. playing in the corner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was it wasn't banned. It wasn't that my parents said you can't listen to this ghastly pop music. It was they just weren't interested. They, they didn't feel the need to have any music. So kind of, I guess I kind of spent most of my youth kind of craving music. So I kind of explain in immense detail the envy of going to people's houses and the, where they had record collections and records and, and things like that where I, I kind of my fix was top of the pops and then listening to the radio and that was really it and I got my first tape was uh, when I was thirteen and my mum was a typist at Secretary and she had one of those dictation tape recorders. Massive clunky buttons with one speaker all built in. And I would have to ask to borrow it to play my, my one tape on what you, was on your one tape the my, my first album I ever bought was ACDC back in black I took my mum my mum promised that she would buy me a tape so I took her into uh, it's now gone uh, but Caroline Music in the middle of Belfast uh, which was this tiny, tiny, filthy little shop, but absolutely brilliant. And uh, they had the cassette carousels, and they unlocked the carousel, oh, took yes. the tape out, three ninety nine. I can still oh, remember the price. Yeah. And my mum had to hand over the money at the counter, and then um, I think I've written about this in a. A while ago, in another piece about record shop experiences, but I then realised years and years later that... uh, I should have actually put this in the piece. I realised years and years later there was a guy at the counter, uh, obviously in chatting to his mate, who was smoking an illegal joint. (sighs)
1: So I think that may have embedded in my mum's
2: mind that uh, music
0: and drugs are synonymous. So you had the one type... Yes, one play. The wonderful
3: irony of playing it through of all machines, that machine. Yeah, it's a AC, massive
0: DC record. Yeah,
3: too, a massive clunky thing. It was about requiring a, enormous stack yeah, for a full effect. Yeah. It's so a tiny
2: thing. Yeah,
0: that. you see, I think it's particularly interesting to, to to talk about this kind of thing right now because it seems to me that this is uh, you, you, the circumstances you're growing up, which is only what twenty years ago. It wasn't that long ago. You know, it now seems as distant as the 18th century. Oh, you know, God, in yeah. terms of access to music because presumably. As a young teenager, you spent most of your time thinking about music or imagining music, yeah. rather than
2: listening to it. No, that, no that's entirely it. it was uh, you would get the you read the music press, and that was almost kind of a, a vicarious experience. You would kind of imagine in your head what this sounded like. So you would pour over the NME and sounds and Melody Maker and Smash Hits, kind of trying to understand what this what this would sound like in a way. And obviously, you would listen to the charts and then. Uh, you would kind of spider eye and listen to I didn't really listen to John Peel growing up because uh, RTE uh, they're, I guess their kind of equivalent yeah, of Radio 1 uh, was uh, 2FM <coughs> and they had a DJ still broadcasting to this day called Fanning. Dave
0: Fanning Yeah, who was, yeah,
2: was an incredible kind of enabler in a way so I suppose uh, I guess he kind of he told he he kind of educated me about a lot of music. I was I first heard the Stooges, New York Dolls, Ramones, all of those bands uh, on his show, and he would play a load of Irish bands
0: as well. So it was a really good mix. But even when you got to hear things, you couldn't listen to them at the pro- press of a button, could you? No, you, you, no, you no, didn't no. have them this, on tap. No, that's this, the thing that fascinates me. This thing on demand, which we know we know take for granted. Yeah, absolutely, it's and like it, I've,
2: I've got a phone here and I've got. My iPod field, I've got Spotify, i have got an app field with music
3: on that, and uh, we're kind of surrounded it with music.: Do you know, another, another side of this, which never fails to fascinate me Is this whole idea which you just mentioned earlier on, was this idea that you, you, in those days, you didn't know what people looked like, and not until the invention of, uh, of MTV, really, did that change. And after MTV, the vast majority of music was bought by people, was bought when they had a mental image. Of the act playing the music, and as a teenager, I used to go to. I mostly had to go to rock festivals to see people because um, I didn't live in London or uh, near any of the big collieries. So if you went to rock festivals, you could see thirty-five bands in one weekend. You know, and when they came on, part of my excitement was I had no idea. You know, often sure. if I hadn't bought the record, and even some of the records didn't have pictures on them. No, no. Yeah, I'd only heard them as you say on the John Peel show, or what, or just heard of them. You know. And that makes an enormous difference. And I think it's interesting, actually, that before MTV, I tend to think that a lot of, uh, a lot of records got into the charts, the uh, pop records, that possibly wouldn't have done after because, again, what they looked like might have worked against them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, there were yeah, certain yeah. acts who actually, you know, the ones who were probably illustrated by Pan's people or whatever on top <laughs> of the bus, so even then you didn't know what they looked like. But once you didn't like the look of something, you probably would investigate it.
0: And, and would
3: have a bad association with the sound, because a lot of pop music is simply, uh, it's the soundtrack to to a, an imaginary movie which stars the people who yeah. make the record. What, what Was that kind of a, a
2: product, though, of, uh, I guess, kind of the LP, is this kind of, create a whole in the mid-60s because it used to be that the artists would appear on the cover of the records and then they would have these concept covers and that would I guess that would lead into the 60s where the band weren't actually pictured.
3: Completely well I used to pick up sleeves and I would I would immediately scrutinise them for the first thing I wanted was to know what these people looked like because you started to fantasise. You know I imagine they nearly all had waist length uh, unconditioned centre there oh, yeah. men or women uh, but I just desperately wanted some clue as to you know I needed some... Yeah, there there, help also, with it, really. there was
0: also an, an another interesting aspect of the appeal of big rock groups in the late 60s was they were allowed to look in a way that you were not allowed to look. You know, most people, if you were at school, oh, yeah, you had yeah. a job, you couldn't grow your hair. You, no. weren't, you la- weren't allowed to grow your hair as long as Dave Gilmore. Mm. Whereas these people, you looked at them and thought, they're living a life yeah. I can only dream of. You know, so even the most unglamorous picture of, I don't know, taken by Jim Marshall who died only the last he week he did uh, the great rock photographer took the picture of the, the Allman Brothers outside the back of the Fillmore East where they're just lounging on their instrument cases whatever that seemed they seemed like creatures from a distant galaxy because you'd never met it. Uh, I like used to prop that photograph up. Like that.
3: and study
0: it, and just sit and look at it, even without
3: the music. Off. This is very boring, game. I'm sorry. No, right. Right. I, I de- I no, no. So. I did. I did. I did 1974, thing. but it was just, well. You would have had equivalents, I'm sure. I mean, yeah. Would, what would have been the equivalents for you? Would you?
0: I
2: guess. Well, I guess kind of my injury point was a lot of heavy metal, so it was stuff like ACDC, it was Scorpions, Sucks, and a lot of that kind of new weave of British heavy metal as well and to an extent, bands like Rainbow and Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath, so they were kind of the the uh, the template, really, because like, I guess... Did you ever get to see any of those people living in your remote... I got, well, I, 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 in the piece I wrote about, I mean, to see Def Leppard when I was, oh, yes. I think, 15, I think it was on the Hysteria tour, and I'd never been to a gig before, so I got there at 6.30, so I got there at 6.30, I was standing on my own, didn't know anybody, and they came on, and they had, uh, they had this massive curtain around the stage with the with the cover of the Hysteria album on it, like kind of a hundred foot high, and they came on and they started playing, and I thought in my mind that you weren't allowed to see the band that they would play behind this curtain, <laughs> <laughs> and that, that was the game. And it wasn't it wasn't until i think they kind of the song fittingly was called stage fright and, and when they hit the first chorus the curtain dropped down and you thought bonus. And i was i was in the king's hall and it was probably it probably remains the most, most exciting, thing, exhilarating thing i've ever and seen because see there was the, the the heat of the lights coming off the stage yes, as well yes, was yes, just yes. phenomenal yeah yeah so, But that was the, the kind kind of, you had no reference points. So you didn't know what a gig was like. I remember when I went to, when I went to the cinema for the first time. I went to see Star Wars. I think it must have been it must have been about six. I had no concept of what the cinema was, but in my mind, I thought it was like the theatre. So you would come in and then. The actors would come out and display it. So I saw, uh, I saw clips on the like news. Wookies, but yeah, sort of but I was convinced. <laughs> I was convinced. I was terrified that Chewbacca was going to come and jump into the crowd and eat me. Because obviously, I didn't know. That'd you know, be even, value for money, though. Wasn't it? When you saw the teaser clips on TV, and they were obviously talking about all the hype, you just saw this enormous hairy thing. How teeth. old were you? Twenty-three. Oh, <laughs> that was last week. Uh, and I thought he was going to jump in into the audience and eat me, so I was a bit scared. So you see, because it's fascinating. No, Most of not, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but,
0: but, but entertainment used to be able to rely on the fact that you, in the audience, were bored. You, you, you'd not been stimulated. You'd never seen anything like that before. Yeah. You know what I mean? Whereas you look at the extent, you look at. <coughs> the, uh, the lens that ACDC we were really looking at the picture the other day have to go to nowadays to achieve the same impact that they once achieved by just dropping oh, a curve oh yeah a, you know, a massive, massive inflatable inflatable rosy release.
2: and, a, and a, a cannon and, yeah. uh, <laughs> and a giant bell bail that comes down because and the, and audience, the, 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 the,
0: the audience, the 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 audience the have been on the way to the gig watching on their iPhones or whatever yeah you know, full
1: length videos and, and each tour I think there's the same for the Stones each tour has to outdo the last they yeah. to get bigger and brighter and louder and brasher
0: yeah it's extraordinary you know whereas you, you used to it fascinates me that kind of the boredom that used to drive pop music used to drive people to go and make pop music yeah because their lives they didn't have an awful lot in them and you, you talk in this piece about working picking potatoes and yeah. so forth and presumably you weren't doing it with a Walkman on or anything. No, like that, I didn't. You? I didn't have a Walkman. My God! So, so presumably out there doing manual labour, and I remember doing this. it's still yeah. holidays and so forth. It's, it's not, not funny. It's not. Funny. It's, it's hard a, it's not work. A bar on the laps. It's hard work, but it's. Boring,
3: most of all. It's terribly it boring. fun if you did the grape grape harvest in the south of France. which I, oh, I, no, I did. You didn't
0: were allowed, allowed did I didn't have
3: that like continental uh, yeah.
2: lifestyle. Yeah, you weren't listening to music. You were allowed to
3: drink. You were encouraged to sing. We would sing. <laughs> yeah, we We would sing songs. And we, we were all slave shanties. Exactly. <laughs> we would change together, David. <laughs> <laughs> When you weren't breaking rocks, you, <laughs> you were picking grapes. You know, we, we had to sing, uh, and it was quite funny, I remember that, rather, you know, there was some German and, and French kids singing all their French and German pop songs, and we would sing whatever we would sing, I don't know, probably Joni Mitchell, I should imagine. It's not so very good. Yeah, but great. what I was going to is we were allowed to drink, you oh, were we
2: were no, we, we, <laughs> we, You were kind of potato <laughs> picking. If, if anybody's ever done potato picking, it's probably the hardest labour you will ever do, because you will, you will find parts of your body will seize up the next day that you didn't know existed, because you're basically working in a constant half-stoop. All the time, and you're like working up, picking, yeah. So. You're working up a hill, and you're kind of you are pulling potatoes out of like very cold earth as well, because it's usually it's always around kind of Halloween time that they uh, that they did the potato harvest. And I remember you used to get thirty p a bag. There used to be a holiday. How day. many
3: bags would you have to pick to buy a, a record by Def Leppard?
2: You could. Uh, I reckon in a good day you could probably make about six or seven quid, so you could probably get the guts of two albums a day for that. There is that One other
3: argument, yeah. isn't it, other thing, oh, in your head, you've got a massive pile of potatoes, handpicked by you, yeah. and over there is the record that was the direct result of that labour. You know, yeah. so your investment in that music was so great. I was, I was so forgiving about some of the records I bought because I,
2: I had to make them work. Oh no, you? You, you, couldn't, oh, you, couldn't, pay for you couldn't buy a dud. You could yeah. not buy a dud. Junius. Well, if you bought a Steam dud, email. you convinced
0: yourself that you liked it. Yeah, you oh, absolutely.
2: It. Yeah. But you would do a lot of research beforehand. Yeah. You would have to do don't a hell know? lot of research.
3: To try to minimise the risk absolutely. of fucking
2: up. <laughs> Which, no, <laughs> yeah. no, it's almost, kind of, music's almost, uh, sadly, kind of disposable in a way. If you pay 79p for
0: a dine loan and you don't like it, so what? It's only 79p. Particularly if it comes out the bank of mum and dad which it very well, often yeah. does.
3: And Danny Baker's theory of course that she can't bother to go up the roof and find things so he just buys it again.
2: He <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like, can't
0: be asking out of his chair well, buys it again. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. it's, it's, it's the price of
2: laziness. <laughs> so of it's 79p is the no, price is. of laziness. Exactly.
0: So we live in an era of relative plenty and so Eamon's uh, you know, memoir of living in a time of uh, relative musical famine is like a voice from long, long ago. Is, actually, it is. I, it think is, it's, it's, I think it's worthwhile reminding It's like, like a refugee.
3: Yes, you come in here his cloth cap. <laughs> yeah, come Prima out my
2: trousers. trousers. Come on over here, picking, us, a picking on my potatoes. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, and it's, uh, we've got some feedback from uh, from Northern Ireland uh, that you were complaining that there was nothing going on in Ballymena Yeah. And uh, Stephen C says, try mill oil. Do you know, Millwall. I don't know that. No. It says you had the Flamingo Club in Balmaino, yep. which is apparently haunt of Hendrix and the Floyd.
2: They had the various people played there. There when uh, Roy Orbison. Yeah, when Roy Orbison died, they ran a picture of Roy Orbison playing the Flamingo in the local paper, the Balmain Guardian, right down the front. My mum. No. Yeah, kidding. Yep. That's very good. Yeah. Well, if you're only going to get, a one got make it royal. Oh yeah. The, 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 she, didn't, she didn't particularly like him because she was kind of more of a Cliff should fan in fact. Yeah, I bet she's changed that
3: uh, review since.
2: Hasn't no, she? no, no, no. Cliff Richard is the only thing she. No, not really like. to, uh, the fact she liked Hendrix. I mean, she must have. No, no, not him. Hendrix. Roy Orbison. Oh, Roy yeah, Roy yeah. It's all Yeah,
1: The word, a magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life.
0: So um, we've had uh, we've had various feedback from the massive as ever. We've been asking on Twitter, and people have got questions that they'd like to place before. The Brain's Trust here, and, uh, <laughs> who, oh who couldn't turn up until yeah. we've had to make it with Eamon Mark. D- and d- and d- disappointment <laughs> guaranteed.
3: Asterix not
0: guaranteed. <laughs> and uh, and one of them is uh, which it uh, they, they relates to something we just mentioned. Actually, it says is music journalism the best job in the world? This is Adam Rob. Uh, and what's the worst job you've ever had? Fraser, worst job you've ever had,
1: uh, I worked in a warehouse carrying industrial-sized microwave ovens from the flatbed of a lorry to different parts of the warehouse depending on where they were going to be delivered to. And it, they were heavy and uh, about £50 pounds each. I would work for hours every night lifting these one after another. And after a couple of weeks uh, working there, I had to leave because my fingers had become fixed at right angles from my palms. Ooh. Ooh.
2: Yeah. Amen. Nasty. I've done uh, I don't want to kind of come across as old boohoo, but I've done lots of really hard jobs. I grew up, uh, my dad was a builder, so we were kind of dragged on the building sites for a look. I remember one of the hardest jobs I ever did was to put rift tiles, to carry rift tiles up onto the second floor of a house to tile the entire roof. So I would go up on a ladder, carry it like six tiles, and lay in them out, hundreds of them. It took me the entire day. But that was that was, that was physically demanding. I think the worst job I ever did, which I wrote about uh, in this uh, piece, but I didn't actually explain the full horror, was I spent three summers, three consecutive summers, uh, working in O'Keyn's hatchery. O'Keyn's are kind of Northern Ireland's equivalent of Bernard Matthews, big oh, poultry so, producers. Yeah. So I worked in a hatchery. Uh, so they would obviously they would put these massive, big trays, like trays and trays and trays of eggs going through these incubators, and you would have to scoop out the chickens, But you have never smelled anything as bad as a dead egg that's gone through an incubator because it was kind of black, and if you touch your wigs, it would explode. And the smell of that was just. Indescribable, and then you would see, you would see deformed chickens that you would have to kill. You would have to squeeze their neck against the the side of the conveyor belt. See to now to they make them. you know
3: reality that, that, television shows, yeah. starring Hugh Fernley Wittington yeah. weeping over the fortunes yeah. of, of, of of yeah. Uh, I've yeah. i readers, I'm not proud, but I've had to kill t-
2: chickens with two heads. Henceforth, will be known well, as yes. chicken killer. Seen yes, the chicken killer. For me. Mark yeah. Ellen, God, I've job. had
3: so many <laughs> terrible jobs. uh Uh, I'll have you really, really quick. Spraying crop uh, bins, grain bins against Weevil, where you were (laughs) dressed up in 1976, and me and my friend Nick worked in the uh, Marlborough area on all the farms. We used to drive around in a little... um, Bedford van with a sloshing great burn of a very powerful and incredibly noxious, probably dangerous chemical. <laughs> the we were then dressed in white suits, which is always quite funny. It's rather like something out of sort of you know ET, really. We lowered down to these grain bins with huge spray guns, and we sprayed them against weevil weevil infestation. That was disgusting. disgusting. Very highly paid. I worked at Kentucky Fried Chicken as a chip shop. That was oh. a chip cook. Um, I, I was. I was, in the, I was. I worked in the circus. For you. While. You. I worked the two jobs. That you worked were the best. The circus. He it was the was man of Two, two, sure two bo- jobs. That I think sound the best, for the hardest work. I worked in the circus as a ringmaster's assistant for nearly two months. Travelling. I travelled with uh, yeah with the uh, Hoffman Brothers Circus, which at the time was the biggest circus in Europe. Huge German-based uh, six uh, pole tent. Oh, my God, it was hard work. And I was, yeah, ringmaster's system, which included me having to ride an unridable mule.
0: You never told me that. Yeah. it
3: was astonishing. No, this is absolutely fantastic. And I had to wear a blue... I've got some photographs of it. I had to wear a blue coat with a little red collar. And the ringmaster was... This is very long time ago, so you had animals in the act. There was uh, bears and horses and lions and stuff, none of which were terribly well treated, I have to tell you. <laughs> That's a surprise. But uh, anyway, yes, and, the, and a little uh, two-piece band would play a, an ice rink organ would play Born Free when the lions <laughs> came out and they came <laughs> till somebody, Til somebody caught me till somebody caught me but anyway one of the things I did at the end the ringmaster used to come out and say alright boys and girls ladies and gents we've got one little show for you left and it's the, the unrivalled mule was I think called Muffin which is a very, un- very un- un- unoriginal name <laughs> And a, an unrideable mule is called unrideable for a very good reason. <laughs> These are fucking crazy creatures. <laughs> <laughs> and they come out, they come out and appear to be almost doing a handstand on their front <laughs> feet because their back legs are pumping out so hard, right? <clears throat> and, and I would then nobody of course would ride the unridable mule. What I used to do is take my coat off go into the crowd and then be the first person to try it. and I would go I will ride that land. I didn't see we've got a young lad over here <laughs> or is it a girl because I had very, very long hair <laughs> is it a girl I love the young lady going to come and ride the wheel. <laughs> so I had to come out and I worked out the only way I could do this thing was to watch it going by, right, and anticipate it ran so fast where it was going to be in about 10 feet time. So you have to throw yourself for a, <laughs> th- a spot in front of the mule, okay, sling your right leg over, <laughs> hang on for dear life round the neck of this thing, and love well, it bucked like crazy. And when I was eventually thrown off, uh, ooh, health and safety would have something to say about that these days, and uh, thrown off at the Then some other very brave person, usually a kind of 22 step rugby <laughs> player, would have a go. But uh, that was part of my job, yeah, yeah so that was bad. That's astonishing. It's not the worst job. The worst job I've had, <laughs> <laughs> Oh Father done Father Christmas, yeah, it was Father Christmas. Ah. That's the hardest job I've ever had. Father Christmas in, in Debenhams, in Guildford. Live weeks. Oh my lord. You where you Father Christmas? Five, I had a Christmas fairy whose name is Greta. And she had to dress up as a fairy. She sat in the, at the front of my grotto. <laughs> That's five pence. You came in, and you had a track. We talked about this before. She sat you, at the
0: you, front yeah, of my grotto.
3: My grotto sounds like a We, cat had, cat a, we had a tra- We had a, 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 a Disney track that played over and over again. We only had seven songs on it. I heard those seven songs on a loop for five and a half weeks. And when I hear them now, I just I'm like a sort of circus horse. <laughs> like, whoa, whoa, whoa! <laughs> <laughs> Who are we here? You know. <laughs> Terrible. So well, you've yes, oh, had a terrible jobs. Yeah. Well I was I so was a road
0: sweeper a a... for a while, so I'll the, you... yeah, but anyway Yeah and the dust, dust... Oh I did that. Yeah, the Dusbin men with Men, that's promotion from being a road sweeper. I, I did mean, that I loved it. I loved it. Yeah. I love right, dustbin yeah. work. And also the road sweeping actually. But those, but those, anyway, those
2: were the days when you had to you had to lift the bits things. Yeah, you wouldn't believe I could do it
0: amazingly. But anyway, going back to Adam Rob's question. Go Is music journalism the best job in the world?
2: I, well, I guess you, you guys are probably more qualified than me to, to say that. Uh, I, I, for me, yeah, I think it's incredible. Every day, there, there isn't a single day where I don't count my blessings and know what the alternatives are, even when I'm kind of stressed out and I've got deadlines and stuff like that. I'm, I'm kind of immensely kind of honoured to be, be allowed into this kind of strange world oh, and be paid you. to have an opinion about things which is quite, it's quite phenomenal actually. Mm-hmm. I think well we're I've got, a living,
3: aren't
2: we? Yeah, well I kind of grew up, massively, massively obsessed, <laughs> with the music press, and obviously, I would have been reading your work, and kind of people that I've, ended up kind of becoming friends with, I was kind of reading them, in this rural isolation, and I, uh, so much so that I actually, when I, I got offered a scholarship to do a PhD at Westminster in '98, and I did it on the music press. Yeah, yeah. That's how you i obsessed. PhD in
3: the
2: I, I interviewed you for it many years ago. You won't remember <laughs> when you were uh, uh, EMAP.
3: I think you might have done, yes, yes. gosh.
2: You <laughs> were, and I will, I, will tell you, I will tell you a story. I wrote to loads oh. of people, I interviewed about 120 people, how journalists. I be about 98 I think 98 99 I interviewed lots and lots of people and I kind of sent them a letter this was kind of pre-email as well I sent people letters saying I'm doing this can I have 15 minutes of your time and I kind of arranged to interview all of these people you were the only person to call me back I'd arranged an interview with you at 12 o'clock and you rang the office where I was working in at one minute to 12 and say oh are we ready to do this interview
0: so I always remember Lord that.
3: Lord. There, you, just, go. there, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Code in
0: glory. There you go. So the, the, the issue of music journalism, I think, came up this week, didn't it, uh, Eamon? This, this is Paul Morley' question. You were talking about what is this? It's, it's, <laughs> did he say it's, uh, it was
2: somebody who was there? It, there uh, was
0: something uh, last night that I heard from Jude Rogers that she'd been to some function where Paul Morley was speaking or something? Right. Like, well, I basically, I, I got okay. a tweet from. Uh, I should give him a reference. Carl
2: Adlam asked me to ask you about it. It, it was something oh. along the lines of. Did smash hits kill music journalism? Yeah, I,
0: apparently Paul, Paul Denoy, Paul Paul De Noy, Paul Morley Paul said um, that uh, that smash hits and you in particular, yeah, Mark you, not me, Sam you, oh, really, Mark Sam Did killed rock journalism. You, you were... Oh, um, yeah, I think that's I,
2: I, I I I think uh, my particular take uh, as a reader and haven't gone back to research a lot of the stuff that was published in the enemy by people like Paul Morley. It was awful, bloated, indulgent rubbish. And while they talk about the importance of punk in killing off prog rock and we need it refreshed, on, the writers around that time were the most indulgent, awful, awful... I read this piece that Paul Morley wrote about the, st- about the police in India. I it's it's I think it remains the worst piece of writing by human
0: I ever read. <laughs> it's astonishingly bad. So for for Paul Mawney, yeah, picture. for Paul Morley oh, to just say tell us, us what you think. To be fair, I don't think he was talking about the standards. Not that I know, because I'm going on via a tweet from Jude yeah. and so forth. But what it appeared to be was it was the return of a kind of an argument that surfaces every five years, which is that. Rock journalism isn't what it was. Well, I think think, what is what it was. Well, I think I think Smash Hits from a from a readers' perspective. I think Smash Hits, and from
2: an academic perspective, I can say this: I think Smash Hits was probably the most important music title in uh, in UK music press because it it completely changed the tone. Obviously, the production values was about colour, it was about fun. It introduced humour. It introduced a kind of secret language that was shared between the readers. I think Smash Hits was massively important. Smash Hits completely changed the game for music. Journalism and it made the ink look completely redundant. Obviously, it led on to things like Q and then obviously uh, the Weird
0: as well. So, <laughs> I, I, it, I, it, it, it brought, I don't disagree I, with any of that, No, nor, nor would I. But, but, but what I'm amazed at is what I don't understand is what do people want to do now that they can't do? Because you can do more things nowadays in more different media, and, and you know, there are more outlets for writing about. From the tiniest, most obscure indie group to Lady Gaga, there's never been more stuff written about those people than there is now. I, don't, I, sounds, no, I agree. I don't really understand On the, the, the papers, in the a... magazines, on the web, on podcasts, you can, you can do it anywhere. And what se- people seem to want is a return of the days when, and it was only a very brief window, when Nick Kent got an in- import copy of Marquis Moon by television... And wrote a rave review of it in the. I went on the front cover, and, and everybody yeah. went aboard it. That hardly happened again. No, you know? I, I
3: don't fully understand the question. I suspect that his issue is that when he worked for New Musical Express, when Smash Hits had its meteoric rise, actually, which would been in 1981, two, three, um, it, all the emphasis went away from what you just so eloquently described as these monumentally self-indulgent 9,000-word pieces about... Doug Paul Morley wrote one about Devo. I remember the first 4,000 words was about Los Angeles. Yeah. He'd never been to Los Angeles and assumed that no-one else had been to Los Angeles. And he was always there wrestling with some internal problem in the back of a cab. Before You didn't meet Mark Mothersburg for a, you know, another <laughs> three pages. You know. I think what he probably objected to was that Smash Hits had various um, kind of golden rules, really. and One was that you must take yourself out of this equation. If I if I'm interviewing you, Eamon, and yeah. you are Nick Hayward of Haircut One Hundred, what the readers want to meet is Nick Hayward of Haircut One Hundred. The, the 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 less of Mark Ellen, the better. But I think she's understood.
2: Yeah, I, I, th- I think um, it kind of it killed off that kind of new journalism indulgence yeah, that, but, the, that but, the music but, press had kind of embraced, and then there was kind of noble intentions about being and saying this is very subjective see, I'm writing from the first but person let the let me say and Tom Wilf from the whole philosophy of no, the New let Journalism me, right. it, it went somewhere very quickly let me back. say
3: one more thing about that because Paul joined I'm great. Um, I'm a am personal admirer of Paul Morley I have to say I get on with him very well I love seeing him you know we, we have no nothing in common um, professionally really the way we look at, uh, at, at the music industry and journalism couldn't be less similar yeah. but I'm very fond of the guy but he arrived at, at uh, New Musical Express at around something about same time I did which was just 77, 78. wasn't he the weird there? young gunslinger uh, in that I think infamous he ad he, was very, he very applied for the job like, but didn't get it uh, and then possibly. came in later but he was, he was very very young and, but what happened was we were arriving um, at a vehicle that already built up a huge amount of speed on the basis of the success of Charlie Murray and Ian McDonald and Nick Kent, various other people, yeah. and a lot of their success was not just to do with their brilliance as writers. And I'm saying this, I interviewed Nick Kent, actually, um, in London, uh, two nights ago at the Boogaloo Club... Yep. One of those, an audience with questions from the floor events. And it really it struck me during this event. And he was terrific, actually. He told some fascinating stories and reminded me of the access that these guys had. And I put this to him as a question. You know, in those days, you know, Nick Camp. Campbell, Nick was a marvellous writer and a very, very bright and very observant guy with a great sense of humour. But he also had the extraordinary... Um, opportunity that when he interviewed Led Zeppelin, rather well, like if anyone listening has ever seen the, uh, the, the movie Almost Famous, the Cameron Crowe yeah. character, based in 1970, appears to spend weeks on the road with Stillwater. Or that was the case. Yeah. And so what he had was immense amounts of raw material upon which to build. So it wasn't just about Nick Kent. Yeah. It was about Led Zeppelin or whoever. And when Paul arrived, that material, that access was being broken down and shut down and closed off by management, by PRs from every angle. And what you were left with was Paul Morley. You had
0: all the access to Paul Morley.
3: Yeah. And so as a compensation, I suppose, those people, Ian Penman, all those people.
0: I don't even agree with that. You don't agree with that? No. I think what these people are all complaining about is the fact that they're not as important as they used to be. You know, it used to be that if you wanted to write about whatever the hit new thing was, you could only do it in one place. Yeah. And if you were the person who was allowed to write about Frankie Goes to Hollywood, you had... People bloody listened. Nowadays... Everybody can talk well, about I, uh, it. Yeah, th- and therefore, you're only as good as your argument or your ability to engage with people or entertain people or whatever. Mm. Your soapbox... And there are the millions more places to do that. Of course there are. I mean, you could
3: argue that magazines it. like Q magazine, uh, which I was involved too, and so we, we actually reactivated that whole thing. But they just set it off in a different direction. similar no, things like Mojo But magazine. no
0: one pointing... You know, when people talk about the great days of rock journalism, what they're talking about is Nick Kent, television, you know, Paul Morley, Sex Pistols, whatever, where... There, there, there was great resonance from a very small area, and it's gone. Hmm. It's gone. You, you know, the, the, the genie's out the bottle. You know, and the internet has has released it. You know, even more over the last ten years. You know, you, your soapbox doesn't entitle you to be heard anymore, and, that, and that's what people are complaining about. They're complaining about massive access to the media. Actually, they're complaining about a flat playing field. Oddly enough. When they're the, supposedly the people who wanted a million flowers to bloom, well, actually they didn't. But they so wanted to continue I, having their little aloft their little pot water. Just, in just, in just, just on a personal level, I think it's a
2: bit rich of Paul Morley to have a, a, an attack on music journalism when all he does is rewrite and remill the same article about Joy Division. Yeah. How many how many <laughs> articles has Paul Morley written about Joy Division? I don't know. it's hundreds, hundreds, hundreds more, more time. He's probably written about them more than anybody
0: else has about anything. Well, anyway, so Mark Allen, anyway, so you destroyed... So great, I'm thrilled. To journalism. Journalism. Mm-hmm. I was hoping Delighted to put that on my this. Wikipedia entry, but we're having to move it to yours. To me, Mark I'm solely to, responsible for the Kill death of Rock You You <laughs> Okay, very. Uh, actually, and while we're talking about that area, of course, today, you know, we uh, oh, Malcolm McLaren, McLaren whose yep. death was uh, announced yesterday at the, uh, the age of 64. I didn't. I didn't know he'd been ill. He'd clearly been ill, yeah. Ill for a while. There was some. Disagreement between uh, somebody who was apparently his representative and his son as to whether he died in Switzerland or he died in in, uh, in New York. In New York, I think it's probably New York's the uh, the favorite. Um, and um, you know, the, I, I, the usual thing last night: phone ringing off the hook because you know every news know, organisation in to, the world yeah. suddenly you know that's one of the things that kind of relates to the Paul Morley argument. You know that nowadays when. Malcolm McLaren dies, somebody like that. Every news organisation in the world wants to have their, you know, little little bit of it. Yeah. And I suppose the way he's been represented is, say, uh, you know, the way he's been presented on the Today programme this morning is Godfather of Punk. Yeah. Which I think is pretty uh, overselling one certain element of what he did, and probably um, probably. Not sufficiently estimating other things that he did. At home. Well, it, yeah, well, he
2: did lots and lots of things after punk, but I think that's kind of the millstone that will always be associated with him because I think, as you you said, you made that joke earlier about uh, "Let It Be" hitmakers. The Beatles. <laughs> People want they want to cut, co- of somebody's life into like half a dozen syllables maximum. So he is kind of punk godfather, and that that's or punk's fan galley I think. Would yeah, be, yeah, yeah. We, 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 I, I guess would be Good the most comedy, yeah. But obviously, he did loads of stuff. He kind of introduced uh, hip hop, really, into the mainstream in the uh, UK. He was bringing all this kind of strange music over from New York, yeah, all all of that stuff. And uh, then he was kind of. I actually met him about six years ago at Meadown, the big kind of music industry conference in Cannes in January. And I met him through a friend uh, who is a lawyer in Hong Kong, a guy called John McClellan, who does, who's been working kind of in Chinese music for years and years and years. And he kind of became firm friends with Malcolm McClellan because Malcolm was Seeing China as this great untapped market for music, and kind of understanding, <laughs> kind of it's, uh, I guess, kind of the with the rise of the middle class in China mm-hmm. and all of that, and so he was, he was absolutely obsessed with China and kind of how China was going to set the agenda for the West in the in the coming years and it was, it was quite prescient in a lot of the stuff that he was doing but I spent an afternoon just listening hanging on his everywhere because he was massively massively charismatic and he could have sold you anything <laughs> you, you, you would just instantly fall into kind of in a weird way, I kind of loved with him. You just kind of you, you were instantly drawn to him because he was like, you hear the cliche of magnetic personalities, but he genuinely had that. And you thought, here is a really interesting guy. The only other person I've met that really had that level of charisma and the ability to paddle bullshit was Tony Wilson, and they did it beautifully. They did it fantastically well. It so they were. Yeah. It
0: is interesting with, with him and Tony Wilson that you know they, they, they were entertainments in themselves, weren't God. they? Actually, and in many senses, more interesting than the people that they ostensibly
2: represent I I once spent uh, a a, a (laughs) night drinking with Tony Wilson at one point I I kind of uh, asked him about the the terrible bands that Factory had signed and he (laughs) said we never signed any bands so I gave Northside as evidence for the case against and they kind of (laughs) we were sitting there and people were laughing and uh, we were kind of just sitting there and I I realised later that he was kind of waiting for his moment and then just uh, in the middle of nowhere he just says to me Eamon can I ask you a question in front of all these people and I went yes certainly." he said have you ever been in the IRA? And I went, no and he went oh no just check in and that was his way of kind of disarming you. You, you there was a kind of very subtle kind of going I'm the one who's in control here yes, yes. and he was the only person who could get away with because he did it that's with brilliant. like massive charm so that's that's the, the like, thing I always been a Roman remember Roman Catholic priest yeah so yeah. <laughs> <But> you,
0: <laughs> you were in his TV show weren't you if you were in his company you know what I mean yeah, yeah absolutely it was kind of you yeah. were sitting on a big sofa and like, he, was he was in charge you
2: would sit round the table and Tony would he would facilitate these conversations yeah, yeah. and he would sit back, but you knew that he was controlling them all. Yeah, yeah. Very, very smart man. Very charismatic. And, and Michael McLaren was exactly the same. And he stole all my cigarettes but I was happy for him. He smoked through two packets of my cigarettes that afternoon and I was happy for him to do it. And you giving up now. Yes, I have.
0: And McLaren, of course, what everybody forgets is all the... Uh... Is all the many initiatives he had that didn't quite take, which I suppose is the mark of a great salesman. They keep on trying. Well, Uh, he he, he
2: tried that with the New York Dolls even before his success. He he, he tried to didn't he he dress them up in kind of communist gear (laughs) in the garden of the death rows of the New York Uh, Dolls. Yeah, and of course, bow
0: wow wow, you know which. Yeah. It didn't really happen at all when, when he was involved with them. There maybe happened a my little bit. Son yeah. a,
3: my youngest son has just discovered Bow Wow Well. Wow oh plays them all the time. I don't know how he found them. He's 24 oh. years old and he just found them. And, and it's so thrilling to think that that can happen. You know, he may not have been a great success at the time, but you can still stumble across
0: didn't it all he, these uh, years later. I remember this very clearly. because I like them very. Because, yeah, you went on the oh, road. I went on, I went on the road with Bow um, um, Wow Well. Wow. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. But he, they were signed to EMI... Uh, and McLaren had signed them to EMI, which was kind of a rich irony, considering he just staggered away, you know, with a Sex Pistols loot, allegedly, whatever. Uh, and and he wanted to aim them at teenagers, and he was obsessed with this idea that teenagers listen to music on, on cassettes, not records, remember? That's this? right, my cassette pet. And, and he came to Smash Hits with, uh, 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 I want you to do a supplement, which we kind of did. Uh, which were featuring pictures You're of Annabella Lewin. Yeah, yeah. No, cover later, I think. Oh, but yeah. anyway, Annabella Lewin in in what were at the time regarded as quite quite risque pictures, but at the, now would not.
3: Oh, the manne Jeannine
0: Sulette. No, that was later. I think that was later. One. Anyway, yeah. they did because she was young and so forth. But he he had EMI <laughs> produce a promotional magazine called. Do You remember? chicken yes he did
1: oh my chicken.
0: god <laughs> chicken, you know which now this wouldn't be allowed <laughs> he no. was. but he made such, such a, a he and i was a public company
3: at the time you know yeah but he i love the way that he he, he had a, a, a kind of entrepreneurial flair which um it was quite old-fashioned. It, it, it's just entertainment-based. You know, the, the way he'd found... I don't know where he got Annabella LeWin from, but he always told the story that he'd overheard her singing in a laundry She cleaner. was actually a, a dry cleaner. I think she was a stage school brat, actually. Before, so. before stage school brats and the Spice Girls mm-hmm. and stuff, it became a kind of cliché. But I love that about it. But it's funny, just going back to Nick Kent for, for a second. This was when was it on Wednesday night, I talked to him at this, um, this do in, in London. And unbeknown to Nick and myself and anybody in the audience, in fact, McLaren was dead. Um, Nick being, uh, Nick, uh, uh who's... Very very keen to to uh, to rubbish <laughs> any of his old compadres, was giving McLaren the most terrific roasting and describing him as uh, talentless and uh, which is not true? Not true. But uh, one thing he said, which was very interesting, I didn't know actually. Maybe people who maybe it's in England streaming. Probably it is actually. But he he said that at the time because Nick was very very closely involved with Sex Pistols was actually the guitar player for a while and possibly even the singer uh, before they got to, when they had uh, Cook and Jones you know, before they found um, Matlock and, and, and Johnny Rotten and the guy he was hanging around, waiting to be uh, recruited, of course, was William Broad, Sussex University uh, English student, I think, who later reinvented himself as Billy Idol. Terrifically good-looking, very, very charismatic, great singer, actually. And he was around on the periphery, and according to Nick, rightly or wrongly, McLaren just missed his chance. And Nick felt strongly that this was the singer of the Sex Pistols. Now, it's quite an interesting idea because obviously you wouldn't have got the kind of sneering political aspect of it. You know, but 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 you we probably wouldn't be sitting would have got talking about it. No, <laughs> but you, according to Nick, this would have possibly been a better idea, you see. It
0: depends what right. your definition of a better idea is that, you know, because people talk about McLaren as the great band manager. It was a terrible band manager because the f- first job of a band manager is keep the band together. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, whereas he was un- too un- clever for a band manager. He always wanted to stir it. You know? yeah. And great yeah. band managers are people who are immensely patient, aren't they? And yeah. could put up with all kinds yeah. of ego. you know. He couldn't at all. He sort of wanted to be the, the you know, the person most listened to. No, 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 well, no, I guess no, he no, wanted no, to be no. as famous as the band. it's well, kind of yeah, fair, fair enough yeah, yeah, because yeah. he sort of invented them in many ways. you know. Yeah. They, he looked at them and thought, that's what they can be mm. you know I can see what they can be but you know be, it was such an accelerated process that they couldn't allow well, that,
3: that, that, that's a really good point I mean there's been all sorts of cliches in, in the past about this being one of the first great rock boy bands that it was put together by a manager but it, but it was and that parallel is a bit unkind but the thing that Nick said about Cook and Jones which is a really good point is that Cook and Jones really would rather have been in ACDT you know, that's the group they wanted to be in, and that's the music that they loved. They'd, they'd had a, 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 a musical upbringing not unlike yours, actually. And, and so, a lot of what they were being told to do in terms of cutting their hair, wearing these clothes, and trying to yeah. get along with John, Johnny Rotten was a little bit against the grain. But again, it points up your point so accurately that it was McLaren who had a vision way beyond. These were just, to some extent, chess pieces he was moving around. <laughs> these were stooges that he was using to build this thing that only he could see, because he did actually, to be fair, to give him a lot of credit, he was very instrumental in the writing. The songs wasn 't he and the general political dimension to the to the stuff they did you know
0: well, I think he also tied them into that old tradition you know all the stuff about the Gordon riots and the, you know the yeah. kind of the, 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 the you know um, Tradition of kind of mutiny in English English life and all that kind of stuff. He yeah, was really strong on that. I
2: kind of like the pamphleteers. And yes, stuff like you that. wouldn't have got much of that. No, as no, Jones. no, no, no yeah. absolutely. So
0: uh, you know, but as you say, you know, pioneered hip hop in in the UK and so forth, yeah. and also was was responsible for that kind of. Uh, I have to think there's a kind of world music hip hop soup that you now hear on uh, you know advertising everything from cars to airlines or whatever. Yeah, and that always seems to me to go back to Malcolm McLaren. Yeah. you know, to kind of what he brought into into music. Further questions from the massive, um, and uh, somebody wants to know. Mitch Ben wants to know. Mark, is the illustrated cover a permanent feature of the magazine? Nice idea. Makes the magazine stand out on the rack. Oh right. Well, what a good question from Mitch.
3: That's part, one of the reasons why we did it. Actually, um, well, there's lots of reasons why we did it. It does look different. It does tie us in. I think with magazines that we, you know, feel we have some kind of affinity with. Really, um, you know, the 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 the, the fine. American periodicals with a little bit of a satirical edge, etc., that were not just a monthly rock magazine with a picture of the specials on the front. So, I think so, and what we did this month, as you can see, is we've tried a different uh, illustrator, Tony Healy, uh, because we didn't want to carry on uh, having the same image and making us look less distinguishable every month. So, yeah, probably. We'll see how it goes. I mean, it's,
0: people seem to really like it, so that's good news. bark pamphlet describes it as a refuge from inanity and a doodled cover. A doodled cover. A doodled cover.
3: Oh, yes, yeah, is, is that is that, a cover? Yeah. That's, that was just knocked
0: up in five I minutes. I think he means it as We a scanned a that off convo. the back you of a napkin. <laughs> a uh, joining the Twitter feed this week Jane Hill, Eric Hammy, Rihanna Humphrey, uh, Johnny Greenwood, at Radiohead, obviously, and uh, Brains Brewery. We're being followed by an entire brewery. Welcome all. Which Brains is is gotta, Brewery. It's got to be good news. And uh, Fraser, what's the most amazing thing you've
1: learnt on the internet this week? Uh, President no. Lyndon Johnson's pants. It's just No, go on. This is a recording. Have you seen this? No no, 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 A recording. I think they record everything that goes on in the, in the Oval Office, pretty much. And this is a recording of President Johnson ordering pants. Trousers. Mm. For trousers. Yes, yes. It is. At one point he says, uh, Now, another thing. The crotch, down where your nuts hang. It's always a bit tight. So when you make them, can you give me an, an, an extra inch in there? Because they cut me. They're just like riding a, riding a wire fence. <laughs>
0: This is a present. And I can thing. sell them all to Iggy Pop or Jim care. <laughs>
1: yes.
0: This is on the
1: internet. At one point he uses the word bunghole.
0: Yes. No. It's brilliant. You've got
2: to hear it. It's hilarious. Ooh. It's oh. so American. It's absolutely bunghole. hilarious. Actually, I've got, you... I've got a Twitter question which uh, slightly goes back to what we were talking about in. a minute ago. Uh, it's from, uh, if you don't follow her already, uh, you <laughs> shared Diana in Heaven, which oh, is... I... Uh, The the Queen of Hearts broadcasting in 140 characters from heaven. Very, very good. Diana in heaven, one word. Please follow. But uh, Diana in heaven has, as you said, with music, uh, what would music be like in 2010 if Malcolm McLaren's King's Road shop had sold royal family souvenir tat instead of bondage clothes? (laughs) Very good
0: question. Yes, and I have no answer. I think we I, I,
2: I think. I think we should just leave that as a hypothetical question. Le- leave, leave Three that, dots. Leave that
0: hanging, like yes. like. like Lin Lin Johnson's <laughs> diploma. <dependent. laughs> <laughs> He's a pro. Look at that.
1: This podcast was brought to you by the Word. Details at wordmagazine.co.uk. <laughs>